Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together prospect writers and editors and push the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark. And today we welcome into our pod Joanna Burke, who's a cultural historian, and Kathy Rensenbrink, who's an author, both of whom have contributed to this month's cover story on the question of modern life and death. The medicalisation of death is something that is actually much more recent than a lot of us kind of assume. People who would once have died in minutes now linger on for months or even years in a twilight zone where they're neither alive nor lifeless. Technology and medicine have disrupted the whole process of dying, and indeed of grieving, in countless different ways. And all of that is what we examine in this month's magazine. A little later in the programme, we're going to be meeting a writer who is pushing the limits of his own mortal coil by growing a second brain in a London laboratory. Yep, you heard that rightly. But first, Joanna and Cathy, welcome to the podcast. The first thing I suppose I'd like to do is talk to you Kathy because you had quite a personal story um, about your brother and his death and how that was very very different from how death used to be a few generations ago. Yes it is a personal story I always want to point that out in these circumstances I don't f- I'm an accidental expert <laughs> I didn't want to be an expert on such matters and um, when I was 17 and my brother was 16 he was knocked over by a car and probably Certainly 20 years before that happened and possibly 10 years before that happened, he would have died there in the road. Um, But actually he was um, taken into an ambulance, taken to a hospital. He was resuscitated and intubated. He was later operated on. um, And later, much later that night, the surgeon who'd operated on him said to my dad, "Um, we've saved your son's life and we don't know yet whether that was the right thing to do. Um, Because at the time... We were all so terribly, terribly, desperately grateful that my brother was still alive, as I think most of us would be. Um, I must say eight years later, because he never fully regained consciousness, when we had to go to the family court and ask for permission to bring his life to an end. By that time, I'd learned it would have been much better if he'd died in the road. um, And when you say it's better, why is it? Why would it? Why is it so awful? Mm, I think this is is actually the thing that's really difficult to explain because I think we can grasp... We really need to sort of update our cultural thinking about it because it is just profoundly difficult to be with the body, the still-breathing body that has a beating heart of someone, the person you love most, perhaps, and 
to watch that body deteriorate. And I think popular culture, not just popular culture, I mean, sleeping beauty myths abound. TV dramas are full of people in comas um, who might wake up any second and spill the beans. You know, the, the popular culture is full of using what people now call a prolonged disorder of consciousness as a narrative device. And it's all exciting, dramatic and romantic. And Sleeping Beauty wakes up after a hundred years of sleep and she kisses someone and she smiles. But the reality of severe brain damage, the reality of someone in that condition is just awful. Their body twists up. There's so much maintenance just to make them not be completely destroyed. And it's profoundly, I think, philosophically and morally difficult to deal with. And that's what I, I suppose when I, I always say I'm not an expert, I just offer myself and my family as a case study of what happens to families. And of course, you don't. When did you ever think? I mean, it's not like I ever thought growing up that the thing I would do that would be most significant in my life would be to be um, would be to kill my brother effectively and that is mm. actually kind of what happened in the end and was the right thing to do but how does anybody think how do we get to a point where bringing someone to their death is a good and moral act it's, it's, it's such it involves such mental wrestling I think it's very difficult to deal with um, uh, Joanna um, like you've written previously a lot about the history of pain and um, you write in your piece for us as well about um, the medicalization of death is something that you think changed in a big way in the 20th um, century. Um, how does that colour what, what you feel on listening to um, Cathy's story? Yeah, I think it's really important because the medicalization of death is something that is actually much more recent than a lot of us kind of assume. You know, death in the past was much more to do with communities, to do with families, and to do, of course, with uh, religion, with, uh, you know, uh, your, your local preacher, your local pastor was very, very involved in this. When you get this move, and it, it took a long time for this to happen, but increasing medicalization of the process of dying as well as death itself, it really changes what death actually, dying and death, actually mean. And, you know, in a sense, and, and I mean that in a number of different ways, in a sense it kind of strips away some of the meaning of death. You know, people, um, instead of going to your local pastor or your local midwife to, you know, help the dying person and then the family, the bereaved family afterwards, you go to the sort of white-coated uh, physician who kind of manages death in a way that is much more distancing, it's much more unemotional, and it's much more abstracted from the dying person's life. Um, and I think that's a very, very important change. You know, we see today, and when we heard Kathy was saying about the prolongation mm. of her brother's life, I mean, this is, again, a very recent thing in our society because, you know, people, for example, in the 19th century in Britain, um, you know, their great fear, in fact, was premature burial. You know, in other words, the signs of death were less certain, there was a lot of ambiguity about it, and therefore what people were frightened about was actually being put under the ground when they were still alive. And they devised ingenious ways of preventing that from mm. happening. Um, one very famous um, novelist said, you know, please, before you put me in the ground, you have to slit my throat. You know, this is in her will. I mean, this is not uncommon. 
But, of course, as the 20th century progresses, what you get is instead of fear of premature burial, you get this fear of prolongation of life when all sort of hope, all sort of pleasure, all sort of communication, as in your brother's case, is sort of stripped away. Um, And with that, of course, comes the stripping away of meaning, the stripping away of um, dignity in dying and death. In a funny way, this idea of a kind of middle ground between life and death, um, which is what you're you're talking about, do you feel it may be, especially when it's prolonged like that, you can't have a long crisis. A crisis has to be a short thing and you lose that acute moment that you need for grieving and adjustment and for the shock of what's happening. certainly true from the perspective of the family bearing witness. Um, And I think... Uh, I mean, I do now, it was eight years between my brother's accident and his death, and I look back on it now, and I would just describe it as utter psychological torment for me to have to see what happened to him and to observe the deterioration of his body. For nobody around to really have any idea or be able to tell us anything. Of course, that's a bit different now, because there's a bit more... there was a bit more known about it. Um, so this was 1990, I think, to the original thing, yeah. and so it goes on to the late 90s. 1990, and then he died in 1998. So, it, And, of course, it was pre-internet. So if it happened now, someone would be able to find out things. And there would be book, books, you know, there'd be a few books to read. Whereas I feel we had to invent the psychological process around this ourselves, almost, mm. um, and and do all that wrestling and wrangling of it ourselves. And, all, and and the guilt and the shame, which finally I have managed to shift through some extremely good trauma therapy, that was just incredibly... I can now see that it was sort of slightly inevitable because there was no one to help me. There was no one to say, have you thought about it like this? There wasn't... I mean, I just loved listening to what Joanna said. I wasn't listening to that in 1990. It wasn't there. Nobody so was discussing it. The business about the white-coated physician stepping in where the priest in another age might have been that that chimes with mm. you to say and i like the whole thing of being like premature burial i think now when i think about my brother's condition i think of it almost as it has some of that terror of the premature burial it is what people will be frightened of and purgatory i think is another word that often sort of springs to mind when you think about that that hinterland that shadow land what we're now capable of and i don't think anyone would want that for themselves and certainly wouldn't want to that to be able to suspend someone in a not le- not alive or not dead situation is actually terrifying. It's quite sort of exciting in a sci-fi sort of a way, isn't it? But terrifying and profoundly difficult to deal with when you're the person caught in that. And kind of none of the professionals have much of a clue about what's going on. I really like Henry Marsh's book, Do No Harm. He's a neurosurgeon who writes about it from the other perspective and he wrote about he describes what happens to the families as collateral damage which I thought is a very interesting way to look about it but he also makes the point which is that it's actually really easy to save someone's life with emergency brain surgery you just drill some holes and drain out some blood it's actually quite a simple thing Mm. whether or not it should be done is entirely different matter and of course surgeons don't actually spend much time with the unsuccessful results of their operations. No. So Surgeons the whole thing isn't joined up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is what I find really interesting about what you're saying, Cathy, because, of course, in the past, I'm an historian, so in the past, what we see is actually people, because people tended to die at home, actually people and their families were much more accustomed to dealing with that process of dying. They, they knew, if you like, the feeling rules. They knew how to comport themselves. Mm. But, you know, today people don't. I mean, 
More than half of people in this country now die in hospitals. And we don't actually see death. We don't deal with that messiness Mm -hmm. that you're talking about. And that makes it much more difficult, I think, for a lot of us to actually know how to respond the way we should respond. And it's often still quite difficult to get that information. I think so. And being too frightened of death, the consequence of which then we do anything to avoid it. But but death is not the worst outcome at Uh, all. And interestingly, in Joanna's piece, you say, don't you think people are increasingly more frightened of being caught in this neither alive nor dead thing than than death itself. Yes, exactly. Because we we sort of lack a sense or not all of us, some of us lack a sense of what is beyond. We lack a sense of that spiritual, of a belief in somehow the soul might survive this, this, the encounter with the Grim Reaper, if you like. We lack that. And therefore, you know, what we do is we kind of fall into this sort of um, abysmal nothingness that is quite frightening for a lot of people. You know, in the past, you know, we had this idea that, well, we'll meet, we'll meet them again maybe in another world, in, in another life, or they will come back reincarnated as another kind of being. There are lots of ways of sort of not giving up on that community, that sense of love, that sense of affection, mm. community with the dead person. Whereas a lot of us now have lost that, and a lot of people don't know where to, where to find that meaning. And yet, um, there was something more hopeful in what Cathy said, which I know you've been thinking about as well, Joanna, which is that possibly you know that technology moved a generation ago but more recently some other technologies have moved around the internet and Kathy said she thought she might not feel so isolated in this situation were she going through it today I think the internet has been wonderful in reviving and giving people a language to talk about dying and to talk about death. You know, anyone now can go and write about their own experience of going through that process. I mean, cancer blogs are are everywhere. They're very, very popular. And they enable people to experiment with being not there, to experiment with being there, experiment with how they want to die and communicating with people, not only those people close to them physically close, but indeed people all over the world. And that's provided people in a very creative way to um, revive a language of dying and of death. Now, I'm not saying it's all good. I think there's some really negative things about it. I think there's a commercial and commodification aspect to it. I think also that there are certain gender norms that are kind of reinforced in a lot of these blogs. You know, women with cancer, breast cancer are always told, you know, for goodness sake, you know, don't walk around the house in a dirty old nighty. You know, <laughs> you still continue buying, you know, some nice lingerie, you know, in, in, in your death. Um, but I actually think that that's a minor, those are minor considerations compared to the very, very positive ways that people are using new media to communicate dying and death. And on both sides, the, the bereaved and the dying. Absolutely on both sides. And and the dying, in a sense, live after their death. Um, you know, Michelle Hansen, for example, we saw the way when she died. She's a Guardian columnist, I should say. Yes, yeah, sorry. Mm. Uh, when she died, um, you know, her um, Twitter feed was taken over by her daughter, who then, in fact, retweeted um, uh, memorials to the dead woman. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, it's it's good it's useful, it's being used in positive ways, the person dying, for the bereaved, but also, in a sense, continuing the life of the one who has gone. Mm. And even, you say, to strike a slightly <laughs> philosophical note in your piece, something about 
this reflects a changing idea of where a person is, where a person, what, what the self consists in, where it starts and stops. Maybe we're going away from this Protestant thing about you find out what the self is by introspection and define it in a more social way because of the internet. Yes, and I think this does take us back to what we used to have in, in, in some senses, a sense that we are not isolated individuals, but we are who we are because of relationships. And those relationships actually do survive um, after you have actually yourself died because people remember you, they, they still talk to you. I still talk to friends of mine who have, have passed away. Um, and we keep understanding that we are who we are because of our connections. And those also include connections with those who have died. Cathy, um, when you listen to um, Joanna there, mm -hmm. um, I mean, she's sort of developing, I think, an instinct maybe you, you, you expressed already, which is that, you know, this one type of technology around the dying, mm -hmm. which, which creates a very uncomfortable kind of halfway house. But maybe technology here is is more helpful do you, when you listen to this do you, do you feel like it could have been a significant help to you oh yeah i think so i think well i th i used to sort of love the internet because i thought it was a real democratization of opinion and lately i've just been thinking maybe that was a terrible idea <laughs> for other reasons not to do with death but um but i think i was thinking about this recently because someone was asking me about health memoirs and i thought actually there's like say something happened to me the person i would be really interested in speaking to learning from reading an account from would actually be someone who was intelligent who was friendly who was quite like me and he was kind of like about 20 minutes further down the experience than me and that i think is really valuable or can be and of course mm. then there's trust issues but that's the sort of thing i think that there's now more access to and the, the boundaries get a bit disrupted so it's less kind of um intelligent educated usually men um, doing stuff at other people and there's more more people are able to partici participate in the narration of what's happened to them and that can be very valuable to consume as an ordinary person alongside the other stuff so so I do think I'm holding to my it democratizes opinion and experience and that is a good thing <laughs> but I think this is really interesting what you just said because I think gender is really important here mm. because you know this whole sort of creative revolution um actually has been driven primarily by women. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, I mean, not only, um, and certainly now in terms of the blogging culture, um, Facebook culture and all that, it's fairly evenly divided between the sexes. But in the early years, you know, of these cancer blogs and, and illness and death and dying blogs, it was very much driven by women and it's very much driven by people who either themselves or their loved ones were going through who, who are sincerely reaching out. I mean, I think we hear slightly too many scare stories about, you know, the uses of bullying on in the Internet. You know, that's obviously a major, major issue in our mm. society. And the reason we know so much about it is because it's so um, offensive. But in fact... Actually, there's a wonderful communities that are there as well. And if you actually look at it, these are more dominant. Yeah, I think in the interest of full disclosure, I mean, I have stopped using social media because I thought it was sending me a bit crazy. <laughs> but I think that's to do with having <laughs> creative. With no, that's to do with having creative work in the world. And again, not, not feeling that you want to be always switched on to the, uh, you know, so that's a different thing. But yeah, but it, because again, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's an evolving thing. What we think we know now will be proved right or wrong or a bit right bit wrong yeah i feel very much like we're we're in the the maelstrom of what's happening with it it might be a slight detour this but the 
is the problem you've had with social media more to do with it being on your phone so you can't get away from it? That's so clever. I do think it's very much linked to a smartphone. So mm. I don't think I used to have the same issues when I just used to look at it on my laptop. But I, and I also think it's linked to, because I used to really love Twitter. And maybe that's because the world feels a bit different than when I first used to start it. But I also think it's because, again, now that I do other things, it can feel a bit performative or it confuses me. The extent, and also it's really addictive. Mm. And I've found out more about the fact that it is addictive and it's designed to be addictive, that it is intentionally addicting us so that we will be traffic for these um, oh, yeah. for these things. And and I did have this moment of self-loathing. For the internet giants. But yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just traffic. And mm. my vanity, my desire to be digitally stroked has just led me into consistently being traffic for Twitter, saying, oh no, isn't it awful about anything that I don't like that's happened in the last couple of years. So I'm just having a rest. But, but I might come back. <laughs> but I mean, uh, what's interesting, I don't think then it invalid if it's a sort of smartphone dopamine hit thing, it doesn't invalidate what Joanna was saying. Of, of course not. If you're not, looking no. something up, if you're proactively, it's this compulsion thing. Is the, it is. Yeah, and I think problem. there's a whole interesting thing around sort of forums and, you know, but, it is, but it's, it's just an interesting and complex point, I think. There's something I think is very interesting on uh, the, the paradoxical way in which um, the, the private nature or, or the non-private nature of death has um, evolved here, Joanna, because um, you talk about moving from the private home into the public hospital um and, and perhaps into the public hospital like in your case kathy for a very very long time which sounds like it would be a move out into the public square but you say actually went along with with death becoming more private more taboo and then latterly this way of grieving or talking to the departed or whatever it is um which you can do on your phone or on your laptop in your bedroom seems to have made it more public C can you help me make sense of that yeah, I think the private public thing is the confusing thing because, you know, as you say, the hospital is a public space, but in fact, it's a very lonely space for people who are dying and for their bereaved ones. And a relatively small number of people are given legitimacy to go into that space, you know, generally family and very, very close friends. And what is happening with um, the new media is that it's really opening up that space that so-called private space um, to a global world where you can be talking to someone in Samoa from your hospital bed and you can be getting advice from um, a carer in Japan. And I think this is also this, this, these filters and getting communicating with lots of different people and being able to choose who you communicate with if you're savvy at this, which most people become very, very quickly, is very important in breaking down that sense of just being alone, not knowing how to express your emotions, your fears. Um, it's so much easier to express that to someone who is in another country mm. than perhaps someone in uh, your loved one in the next room. And I know certainly, you know, a lot of people in that process of dying or in pain, great pain, actually deliberately don't want to express those things to their loved ones because by expressing it to their loved ones, they're inflicting pain on those loved ones. But expressing it to someone in another country, they don't have that same sense of I causing see. pain, which like they a are. Like poet letting it's, off steam or whatever it is in yeah. a kind of... I, 
you've alluded already, um, Cassie, to the fact that the world seems to have gone a bit mad through social media in, in recent times. And we can think about, I don't know, Donald Trump sacking Rex Tillerson without telling him using a tweet. We can think about politicians swearing at each other. We can think about all kinds of coarsening that there is. But perhaps that's the flip side of trampling on taboos. And maybe that's really what social media is about. And so where this comes back to the question of death, I think, is if death was the great 20th century taboo and social media doesn't like taboos, maybe that's how it's um, uh, helping us to face things that we're better off facing than denying. Maybe so. I mean, I think social media is an amplification. So I think in, you know, in the, it is just an amplification of humanity. And in humanity, there is great and wonderful things. And there is truly dreadful and awful things. And you just really see that. It, it's It's very accentuated in Twitter, isn't it? I think the fact that the, the way it's kind of almost like chopped up. So you've got like, oh, look, my book's come out above the give money because this girl has just been machete to death in wherever. And this child has gone missing. I think it's something to do with that. So you see, you see all shades of humanity living and dying, I suppose. And I suppose that's probably what sends me a bit crazy because I've worked out over the years that to say to stay sane I have to maintain a faith in humanity (laughs) and when I look at Twitter I just don't. (laughs) I suppose one thing we didn't talk about at all in any of the pieces is you've got literally public executions being watched in this country now you know through Islamic State or whatever like putting up videos people can now watch this stuff. But I'm not really convinced that death is this great taboo. I really I think we need to think about what we mean when we're talking about death as a taboo because in the past people spoke a lot about death. I mean this. Do you mean the Victorian past or 20 years ago? mm. Victorian past you know death was sorry fear of death is sort of the the rock upon which God created the church. You know, this um, people spoke about it a lot. But even if you go into to go away from the Victorian period into the 20th century, people are speaking about death. They're just not doing it in a public form. For they form, they are doing it at home. They're doing it with loved ones. There's also a class element to this. That you know, well up until very modern times, um, you know, um, the processes of dying were. Um, very open part of communities. I'm thinking about rights in, for example, Ireland or in Scotland or in Wales, where there's very public mourning until very recent times. Um, So I think that there's very much a a class aspect to it. There's very much also about public-private. In other words, people did it at homes but not outside their homes. And also when you get the increasing hospitalisation of death, of course doctors don't talk about it because for them... Death is a failure. (laughs) And so they are the ones who are stifling it. But of course, then those bereaved ones go home and they're talking about it. And that's the dangerous thing. You know, the medical profession should not be branding death as a failure because death actually still is the thing that will happen to us, hopefully at the end of our lives or sadly, because we get caught up in some sort of terrible accident. People used to be good at it because it happened. Whole families would lie in the churchyard. Um, People would die young. Um, people would know. Mu- I'm really interested if there's any stats in this because I mainly have this through reading novels and reading literary biography. It, women often women had lost a child. A lot of people lost children because they had more and they lost them because if the child got sick, it was more likely the child would die. Whereas now it's much more a death out of time is more unusual, feels more brutal, feels more unfair, feels more difficult to get over because it's not happening to everybody else, and we and we've therefore lost the 
sort of habitual way that we used to be able to deal with it. And again, people in the community, not professionals, not quite white witches, but people in the community that had just been around a while would have built up an expertise and would rally round. And so I think it's that that's um, that we probably again, it, one of the accidental problems with living in a secular society, I think, is that loss of community and how to navigate life's difficult bumps because the church just used to take care of a lot of that so to try and wrap that up i'd say um what you're saying there is that like you know as we've been hearing the way that people die the way that um grief is expressed um is something that has evolved a lot but in the end death remains the inevitable thank you both very much now let's move seamlessly from the spiritual side of death over to the bodily aspect to do that, I'm going to be talking to Philip Ball, a science writer who has, and you're hearing this right, grown a second brain in a London laboratory. It really is just as strange as it sounds, and I'm not sure I can add anything. I'm going to have to hand you over to our conversation now, where, in the end, he explains what it's all about. Well, when we learn about death, it's as a very black and white thing, but the science writer, Philip Ball, who's with me here today, um, tells me that um, science in the past, particularly the science of our, our bodies and ourselves, has um, disrupted some of the ideas of death. Well, yes, in the early 20th century, scientists began to discover how to keep cells from our bodies alive outside of our bodies. So in culture, just by feeding them the right nutrients, they could uh, sustain them for a while. And when this first became possible... Um, in fact, it first became uh, announced to the public through the work of a chap called Alexis Carell, who was a French scientist who claimed to have made a chicken heart or cells from a chicken heart that were immortal, that he could just keep them going forever this way. And this excited all sorts of speculations in newspapers about you know, whether this was going to be some kind of immortality, whether cell culture was going to give us eternal life in some sense. Quite what that means isn't clear because, you know, because our cells live on doesn't somehow <laughs> mean that we're in them, or does it? But uh, you, Philip, have given it another twist now because we're um, reporting, or you're reporting in this month's prospect, not just on growing any old cells, but growing some cells from out of your body and turning them into what, in our sensationalist headline-writing way, we're calling a second brain. Tell us more. Yeah, well, it's kind of that. Um, what has been done, and it's been done by neuroscientists at UCL, they've taken a piece of flesh from my arm from near the shoulder, just a tiny piece, and cultured these cells um, this is a fairly sort of standard thing they just put them in nutrients and keep them alive but then they've done something extraordinary to them they've transformed them into a completely different kind of cell so uh, the, the cells taken from my arm were kind of skin forming cells they're called fibroblasts and if you treat them in a particular way but in, in, specifically if you give them certain genes um, that make them start to do certain things you can turn them into a state that looks like the so-called stem cells that exist in very early embryos. They're the cells from which all of the tissues of our body can be grown. So in a sense, you've turned these, these cells back into this sort of primitive state from which you can grow any body tissue. So that's sort of like reverse ageing, which sounds a bit death-defying at that stage. It does, and, and in, in a sense, it is. Um, you know, because these cells are returning to something like the state that 
at the earlier cells would have been in uh, in the first stages of my own growth as an embryo. But then they've done once you've got them there, you can do something more extraordinary because you can grow them into essentially any tissue type. As far as we know, you could grow them into heart cells. You could grow them into liver cells um, if you give them the right prompts, um, which kind of means, again, sometimes feeding them other particular genes to send them that way. Um, but what uh, the, these uh, people at UCL have done to, to my stem cells is to turn them into brain cells. And that's actually surprisingly easy, it turns out. You just have to give them a little nudge. They're very sort of eager to, 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 uh, to find this fate. And as Are they just a load of neurons, a load of cells of one type, or is there something a bit more than that going on? Well, that's the extraordinary thing, that if you, you can grow them that way, you can grow them as just sort of flat sheets of neurons, and that way you can look at them through a microscope and see that they are neurons and see what they're doing. So that would be a bit more like the chicken cell it would yeah. yeah yeah and we've been able to do that for some time but it was discovered um, only a few years ago that if the cells aren't firmly stuck to a surface if they're able to form a sort of three-dimensional clump then they start developing not just as a sort of vague clump of neurons but into something that looks like a brain and what i mean by that is that it has the same kind of structures that you see in an embryonic brain. And it grows this way uh, until about the size of a small pea. Now, it's not exactly a brain. and You know, we have to be careful here because a brain only develops in an embryo because it's surrounded by other tissues that sort of tell it how to grow. Right. But you, a backbone and whatever. But, exactly. But, but you can see these cells trying to do that. They're forming brain-like structures, even something that looks like it's sort of searching for a backbone to grow a, a, a central nervous system down. Um, and how does it feel, Phil, to <laughs> look into this Petri dish and see something that in some ways... It's definitely yours, isn't it? It's your DNA, your chromosomes. It's in and that, it's turning it, into a little brain. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing, because in that sense, it is mine. It's absolutely you know, derived from my cells, and it has my DNA. Um, but legally, it's not mine. Uh, legally, and we, one has to have these, these legal guidelines in order to do the research in the first place. Legally, it's now a cell line. It's not a tissue culture. And so it's just a, gr a group of cells that happen to have my DNA. But it's interesting that, you know, I don't think of it that way. I don't feel particularly possessive or proprietary about these cells, but I do think of them as being a piece of me. In a sense, it feels like what else could they be? They've grown from my arm. Let's just talk for a minute about the practical application. I mean, we've in this kind of death issue, for want of a better phrase of prospect, we're talking about, um, you know, life being extended and, and the implications of that from all kinds of devices, from di dialysis to um, uh, uh, respirators. But, like, is this actually going to help practically help people defy otherwise deadly diseases at some point? Well, uh, the, the ability to grow any kinds of tissue from these stem cells taken from an adult's body, that certainly is going to have medical implications. I mean, you mentioned dialysis, but you know what you should be able to do uh, eventually with these cells is to simply grow another kidney, a kidney of your own, so you won't a have whole the problems. Kidney. Well, something like a kidney. Growing a whole kidney is, you know, a full-size kidney is difficult because it needs a blood supply, and so you've got to grow the cells that provide the, the blood vessels and so on that's tricky but um but growing you may not need that you may grow small they call them organoids and certainly if we think about a pancreas 
So this is, you know, what produces insulin that our bodies need and what sometimes breaks down for people with diabetes. That doesn't have to be a full-size pancreas. It can be little bits of pancreas that between them can produce the insulin that you need. So certainly there, there are possibilities. And maybe uh, heart, people lose heart muscle. Could they grow some more? Yeah, well, that's one of the the um, the other issues that's being looked at. The problem there is that the muscle has to be integrated with the rest of the heart. It has to beat in synchrony with the rest of the heart. So growing it in culture and then putting it into the body is tricky to get it to integrate. But now it seems possible to actually grow it directly in the body. So it's even more remarkable that you can transform other types of cells that are in our hearts. There are fibroblasts there as well that form tissue. You can transform them in the body into muscle, heart muscle cells. And this has been done in, in animals, in mice. So we know in theory that it's possible. That would be the way to do it. And that would also be the way to do it if we were thinking about regrowing brain tissue, that we'd have to do it in situ, in the body, so that it integrates with the rest of the, the neural network that it's part of. So, I mean, fascinating stuff, all of this, because I think it was only 10 or 11 years ago that, um, that, that people thought this wasn't in principle possible if things have moved that quickly some of these deadly uh, uh, conditions might be um, set back um, or knocked for six um, who knows when it could be it could be sooner than we think I guess well it's certainly moved incredibly fast this this whole area of reprogramming cells since it was as you say uh, discovered that it, this was possible only 10 years ago already people are talking about clinical trials for regrowing heart tissue this way for example so you know it's it's very hard to know what the uh, at this stage what the real implications are there are inevitably challenges to face for example making sure that these cells do what you want them to do and don't go wild and create tumors that's that's really part of the the worry but the you know the the medical applications seem very real the experiments that have been done on animals seem to be very promising in many respects so it really does look you know not out of the question that we might be able to regrow tissues to prolong life um, I, I mean, the thing that grabbed me in your piece is this idea of like a salamander, you lose half a leg and then you, you start to grow it, <laughs> grow it back. But if we bring it back to the mortal coil and uh, where that leaves it, uh, leaves us and, and leaves it, Phil, um, you talk about this idea of a what you call a meta me that came into your mind looking at this mini brain could you just expand on that slightly <laughs> well i felt i needed a way to think about this and we don't really have a way to think about this about a part of our t flesh growing outside of our body you know what 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 in what sense is are those cells me and really what this is showing us is that our flesh, our, uh, our physical stuff is far more versatile uh, and uh, malleable than we've ever thought. We just think, you know, our body grows and that's our body and that's it. But clearly, in this case, you know, it's not it for my, for my brain um, that there's something like <laughs> a kind of brain thing that is growing from my cells. And so it, it feels like what this research is showing us is that that 
we have to find a way of thinking about identity that comes to terms with this ability to regrow bits of ourselves. And I should say those bits also include germ cells. Sperm and egg can also be grown from fibroblasts in principle. Now, we, you know, we're not quite there in terms of being able to create a, an embryo that could grow into a person. And there's no obvious motivation for doing that at the moment. But in principle, it's starting to look very possible. And, you know, this isn't quite the same as, as cloning because it's being grown directly from our flesh. So what is that? What does, how, we, how do we think about that? So I guess, you know, at the moment, this is how I was sort of rationalizing it to myself, that there's clearly a sort of broader potential me from my flesh that this particular manifestation of it that's sitting here in this seat is you know just one aspect of right and so 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 uh, you know this this thing that's grown in a lab in some somewhere down the line wouldn't um have obviously your experiences may have different kind of connections between different bits of the brain but the tissue and stuff would be there so it'd be almost like a a different flavor of you or something it's uh, it could be seen that way um you know i think we are going to have to 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 grapple with questions like this particularly as these technologies start to impinge on reproductive technology which you know is is likely to happen that it is likely i think that we will at some stage have laboratory grown eggs and sperm that will be used for reproduction so these are very real issues thank you for listening and my special thanks to our guests here joanna burke and kathy rensenbrink and thank you also to philip ball i'm tom clark the producer was jay elwes and you can read joanna and kathy's articles on our website, as well as an in-depth account of Phil Ball's second brain. That's www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. All of it is also in the new issue of the magazine, alongside an article by Britain's top epidemiologist, Michael Marmot, on why we can no longer assume that we're going to keep living longer. And alongside that, we republish a piece by Stephen Hawkins on how he managed to turn a brief history of time into a bestseller. Scientific brilliance, it seems, is one way of achieving immortality. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, do go and have a poke around on our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk and even better, hit the subscribe button where you'll find that subscription rates are very reasonable indeed. Please keep an ear out for another Prospect podcast soon, but for the moment, thank you very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.